Welcome to Health Talks Now, bringing you the facts you need to keep you and your family well. We're happy you're tuning in today. Baptist Health is committed to providing compassionate, high-quality care that is centered on you. Listen to all of our podcasts to hear from Baptist Health physicians about the latest medical advancements and treatments. And get trusted information on timely health topics from our healthcare professionals. Whether you want to learn more about a specific condition or procedure or find tips for living a healthy lifestyle, Baptist Health is here to help you become a healthier you. We're joined with a special guest for an important conversation that affects many. In terms of obesity rates, the Commonwealth ranks in the top 10 in the nation for the highest rate of obesity. Along with the conditions and issues surrounding joint problems, increased risk of several cancers. Today, we're talking about the impact on the heart. Dr. Byron Scott Cook, thank you for joining us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. How does obesity contribute to heart disease? So I think that's a a good and important question. So the CDC looks at data in terms of the prevalence of obesity in the U.S. And actually in 2018, they estimated that about 42% of Americans actually met criteria for obesity at that time. And we know that the incidence of obesity in the U.S. is just continuing to increase. So that's really a huge patient population that's at risk for other diseases, including heart disease. Sure. Uh, They previously actually linked several different types of heart disease to obesity, things like heart failure. We are beginning to learn that obesity has effects on the heart that make you more at risk for having abnormal heart rhythms like atrial fibrillation. And then we know that obesity also comes with several other risk factors. So frequently, obesity is associated with high blood pressure, with diabetes, uh, high blood cholesterol levels. And there's actually something called a metabolic syndrome, which is kind of a constellation of all these things together. And all these risk factors also put you at risk for heart disease and coronary disease. Okay. Yeah, sure. I think that makes perfect sense. You mentioned some of the specific heart diseases that obesity can cause. Let's dive into those a little deeper. And let's start with high blood pressure. So when someone is obese, can you explain to us specifically um, how that affects the blood pressure and exactly what that does? Right. So when, when you're obese, Like I said, you have all these other risk factors frequently like high blood cholesterol, and these have changes on the arteries. We also know that uh, it affects being obese, affects the amount of oxygen that's being circulated. And these, it's a combination of these risk factors associated with diabetes that causes blood pressure to go up. And in fact, we know that people who have high blood pressure, one of the most effective means for lowering blood pressure is actually weight loss. Hmm. So for every know, kilogram or 10 pounds of weight loss, you get a certain lowering of your blood pressure, oh, which wow. is actually comparable to taking a blood pressure medication. It's, it's wow. has that strong effect. Wow. So you guys work in conjunction with our bariatric department, I would imagine, in, in primary care for assisting a patient in losing weight. Oh, certainly, especially in the cardiology clinic, we always recommend uh, improving activity and weight loss. And part of that is to reduce the incidence, you know, if a patient comes in to see us that has newly diagnosed heart failure, if they come in with a heart attack, one of the things they can do to improve their health the most and try to prevent these events from happening again is weight loss. And so we actually have connections with nutritionists. We, Mm. you know, strongly encourage rehab, cardiac rehab, as well as 
when necessary referral for you know consideration of bariatric surgery. So you mentioned diabetes, and we know that obese individuals have a greater chance of developing diabetes. And in fact, the American Heart Association reported that at least 68% of people 65 and over with diabetes also have heart disease. Can we dive into that a little bit more? And what can you tell us more specifically about diabetes as it relates to heart disease? Yep, so diabetes is particularly important when in the cardiology realm in terms of coronary disease. We know that high circulating blood glucose, which is what what happens in diabetes, has a direct effect on the arteries throughout the basically throughout the body, including the arteries that supply the heart. And that direct damage to the arteries will over time cause plaque or blockage to form. Hmm. And this is setting you up for coronary artery disease, potentially heart attacks. Um, which is also associated with heart failure. How does excess weight affect your cholesterol level? So excess weight or obesity has several effects. There's what people know as good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Sure. The bad cholesterol that we pay particular attention to is called the LDL. And in obesity, that tends to be higher. The good cholesterol is something called HDL. We want that to be as high as possible, and we know that in patients who have diabetes, that's frequently low. So what you end up with is raising of the bad cholesterol and lowering of the good cholesterol. Outside of taking a cholesterol medication, what could someone do to improve their good cholesterol and lower their bad cholesterol? So outside of medications, uh, weight loss Mm -hmm. uh, has a, a particular effect on improving your cholesterol pattern. As you lose weight, as you improve your diet, and as you increase your physical activity, you start to see corrections uh, in those what we call metabolic abnormalities or the, the cholesterol abnormalities. How often should someone come in and have their cholesterol levels checked? It varies somewhat depending on how high the cholesterol is and what other heart conditions we're treating them for. We're particularly more aggressive in our patients that have coronary artery disease. What we like to see is that after starting medication, several months, maybe six months later, we'll recheck the cholesterol to see what effect that medication is having, and then we can adjust medications from that time. Once we get the cholesterol where we want at goal, then we kind of back off of the frequency of checking. Okay. What's the effect on heart palpitations from, from someone that's obese? So that's an interesting question, and it's actually an evolving question. So Mm -hmm. palpitations are a general term used to describe any sensation of an abnormal heartbeat. And palpitations can be caused by a whole host of different heart abnormalities or heart arrhythmias. We're starting to learn that patients who have a higher BMI um, or who also have associated obstructive sleep apnea are getting some changes in the heart on a molecular level. There's a particular type of remodeling that may be happening, which research is currently indicating. Um, and it looks like that particular remodeling of the heart sets you up for abnormal heart rhythms like mm. this atrial fibrillation, which has a very high prevalence, not only just in the community, but also particularly among the obese. We'll be right back. Baptist Health's highly skilled cardiologist offer a progressive approach to healthcare with personalized, patient-centered diagnosis and treatment protocols. No matter what type of heart care you need, our heart team provides everything from prevention to treatment. It's a team effort. Our specialists come together to discuss a plan for every step, working closely with you, your family, and other doctors you may be seeing during your care. Baptist Health Heart Care that treats you like family. Go to baptisthealth.com slash provider 
to find a heart care provider near you. We're back with Dr. Cook to continue the discussion. So let's look now at smoking, which of course we know that smoking cigarettes affects the heart and it remains one of the most preventable causes of heart disease. What could you tell us from a clinical perspective? Obviously we know, you know, not to smoke and smoking is, um, has negative health impacts across the board, but what specifically about the heart could you tell us about what smoking does in terms of damage to our heart? Right. So smoking actually has a range of negative effects in terms of heart disease. Uh, Similar to actually obesity, we know that patients who smoke have an increase in their triglycerides or their bad cholesterol. Hmm. They also have a lowering of the good cholesterol. The smoking also, similar to having uncontrolled uh, glucose, smoking can have a direct effect, uh, basically toxicity on the arteries, the walls of the arteries, which can cause damage and leave you at higher risk for developing plaque and coronary disease. And we also know that smoking presents uh, what we call a thrombogenic state or promotes basically blood clotting. So patients that do have underlying coronary disease or if they've had a stent before, just by smoking puts them at higher risk for developing a blood clot and potentially having a heart attack. So smoking really has a whole range of toxic effects. So we're pretty aggressive in a cardiology clinic. Anybody who's come in with heart disease or coronary disease, we really try to push um, for smoking cessation. That's one of the things they could do to really lower their risk the most. And like you said, it's one of the most preventable causes for heart disease. Sure. So you mentioned blood clotting, and we're seeing some news stories out there about COVID-19 and specifically how that can contribute to clotting issues. What can you tell us from that perspective? I think the, the real concern here is that you're going to get an additive effect. Mm. If you get Mm. the COVID infection, then that puts you at a somewhat higher risk or somewhat more thrombogenic state. So you're more likely to form a blood clot. But then if you start adding things like smoking on top of that, that's just going to continue to raise your risk for forming blood clots. And that's exactly what they're seeing is increased blood clots, not only causing heart attacks, but also, for example, stroke. You're getting clots forming throughout the body. So it's just a compounding effect of damage and um, to make it more difficult to to recover. Exactly. Can we transition to vaping since we're talking about smoking um, and the impact on the heart and blood vessels? How does um, vaping affect the, the heart? So we're starting to learn more and more about vaping. It's still a relatively uh, new phenomenon here, but what we're finding is that it it's actually as harmful, if not more harmful than smoking, and particularly... Wow. When it comes to the heart, we know that there's a higher incidence of people that suffer from heart attacks that are vaping. They also tend to have higher risk of what we call angina, which is the development of chest pain related to blockage. Hmm. Um, We're also seeing that there's an increased risk of stroke compared to um, people vaping compared to people who don't. I think there's a misconception out there that vaping, you know, is is a safer alternative to smoking, but that's definitely not the case. You know, it's really startling. I read yesterday as we were getting ready for your episode that there are over 7,000 flavors. So this is clearly targeted to be um, enticing and um, yeah. attractive to people. Right. And the, and the, you hit it right on the head in that, you know, it's been advertised as a safer, safer alternative, 
but the reality is that we're, we still don't know all of the ingredients and toxins that go into the, the vape, and it's not well regulated. So it's been really hard to try to, you know, tease out exactly how harmful or demonstrate how harmful vaping can be. Sure, sure. And I also saw that there was significantly more, um, someone that vapes is significantly more uh, likely to have not only the heart attack and, and coronary artery, artery disease that you mentioned, but also depression, which then plays into obesity and some um, that they're less likely to be active and eat, eat healthy. Right. And it kind of becomes a vicious circle where, where they all exacerbate each other and you wind up with a metabolic syndrome and you know a bunch of risk factors, not only for heart disease, but like you said, for a whole range of conditions. So looking at prevention, we know we should be eating a healthy diet. We know we should be staying active. And we touched on bariatric surgery as a way to aid in that weight reduction to promote a healthier heart. What should we look at in terms of just general um, maintenance and annual checkups? I know that you know we should be getting an annual physical, but for someone who's relatively healthy, maybe at r- low risk, how often should we be checking in on our heart health? Yeah, I think it's really important, you know, for somebody that doesn't have any diagnosis of heart disease, whether it's coronary disease or heart failure, um, they're other they're otherwise healthy. Really establishing with a primary care doctor so that they can do the annual screenings um, as well as blood work when needed. And one of the key factors here for somebody who's healthy is watching for developing these risk factors. So making sure that you don't develop hypertension or you don't develop problems with your cholesterol. These are things that the primary care physician can do or at least work on to try to lower the risk of at some point in the future developing heart disease. So I think really establishing and having a good relationship with a primary care physician um, and getting that annual physical uh, is really key. And right now we're doing a lot of that via telehealth, correct? Yes, absolutely. What are some of the early signs and symptoms that people can be aware of? There's, there's different forms of heart disease. I think one of the uh, biggest issues is just recognizing the signs and symptoms that could be related to a heart attack or heart blockage. Sure. So things like developing chest pain, um, developing shortness of breath, you know, somebody who used to be able to walk to the end of the driveway to go get the mail. If you can only do halfway before you start getting so short of breath, you can't make it or you get chest pain. Those are really concerning things that would make me say you should probably get in to see a cardiologist or at least be seen by your primary care doctor. Hmm. It's also a little bit more complicated because we know that women don't present necessarily the same way as men do. And they present a lot of times with more atypical symptoms. For example, they get they get more GI symptoms. So what could be mistaken is heartburn or nausea. Um, so those are some symptoms I think that particularly females need to pay attention to that could potentially be related to heart disease. Sure. These, these are um, easy to overlook. So it's important to either keep a diary or take note and relay all this information back to your primary care doctor so you can see yeah. the cardiologist on t- in, uh, at the right time. That's right. And I think in addition to seeing the primary care doctor something that everybody can do is really just increasing their physical activity. Sure. Absolutely. The the more mobile we are, the more active we are, the better aerobic fitness we have, the more impact we'll have on lowering our risk for heart disease and heart failure, and as well as a number of other conditions. What are you recommending to your patients? How many minutes um, should they be active and in how many days a week? Yep. So I, I typically recommend the uh, American Heart Association and the ACC have formal recommendations for how much exercise should we be getting. And what they say is that we should be exercising or doing a moderate level of exercise 
150 minutes a week. So that's about 30 mm-hmm. minutes, five days a week. I have a question for you, and I may be totally off base here, but does sleep affect your heart health? It absolutely does. All right. Um, so in, in terms of uh, specifics, for example, we, we mentioned already a little bit about this atrial fibrillation. Mm-hmm. In addition to obesity, we know that people who have untreated sleep apnea tend to have a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation. We also know that people who have sleep apnea have uh higher incidence of hypertension. So how sleep, how, how well you sleep at night and whether or not you have sleep apnea really is we're discovering having a profound effect on other conditions, particularly related to the heart. Okay. Interesting. Well, before we wrap up, we want to ask you about the urgency of care. We know a lot of people are feeling conflicted, I guess, about coming back into our facilities in light of the COVID crisis. What can you tell our listeners about timeliness of seeking care and assuring them that our facilities are safe and we're prepared? Yeah. So I think in, in terms of heart disease, um, as well as stroke, it, timing is really essential. So somebody that has the complete blockage of an artery in the heart and has a heart attack, we know that the faster we can get blood flow back to the heart, the better they'll do. And we reduce their chance of having significant heart failure or damage to the heart muscle. So it's really a time-sensitive issue, similar to a stroke. The longer you wait to present for a stroke, the less or the more brain will be affected and the worse the outcome could potentially be. So I think even though the, the... COVID virus um, has a lot of concerns and is, is keeping people away from the hospital. I think patients who have concern that they could be having a heart attack or could be having a stroke, it remains absolutely essential that they come to the hospital promptly to get treatment. When these conditions are left untreated, they can lead to uh, even more serious complications that result mm-hmm. from a heart attack or stroke. And they should also at least be aware that uh, in the hospital, we're taking numerous measures to try to protect not only the patients, but the staff. So isolating, making sure that they have the correct personal protective equipment, um, trying to minimize their risk for any potential COVID infection while they're in the hospital with us. And we try to move them through the hospital and to discharge you know, as quickly as, as reasonably possible. Sure. After someone comes in, say they say they get care quickly, they're treated, and then they're looking at recovery. What does Baptist Health offer in terms of rehabilitation? What does that look like at the aftercare? So all of my patients that come in with either heart failure or coronary disease, I refer them for cardiac rehab, which here at Baptist Richmond, we have a cardiac rehab facility located just above our clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's particularly important because we've actually shown that by doing cardiac rehab, we can improve long-term mortality and and outcomes in in this particular patient group just by attending and doing cardiac rehab. So I'm very aggressive. Everybody that comes to my clinic or that I see in a hospital that has uh, heart disease, I typically refer for cardiac rehab. How long does that typically last? And can you be cured of heart disease? So I don't think it will cure heart disease, but what you're doing is which we kind of already mentioned is you're really increasing your aerobic activity. And by doing that, you're going to promote weight loss. You're going to promote better aerobic capacity. These are all going to help minimize your risk factors for having repeat events, whether that's a coronary artery disease, a heart attack or heart failure. You're really minimizing risk factors. Makes sense. 
So long-term after this uh, cardiac uh, rehab, um, what does the life look like for one of these patients? Are there adjustments made and modifications, um, lifelong medication, assuming that they are taking the recommendations for a more active lifestyle and adjusted to their diet? Is there stuff that they need to be aware of as they um, move throughout the years? Yep. So frequently these patients will require long-term medications, potentially lifelong medications. Mm -hmm. I think where the most benefit for cardiac rehab is really helping with a lifestyle adjustment. A lot of times, you know, cardiac rehab doesn't just promote exercise, but they go over how to have a better diet. They go over salt restrictions. They teach you to monitor your blood pressure. So these are really lifelong changes um, that will be important for the patient to continue. And it really, I think, once the patient gets discharged, starts in cardiac rehab. But those are things that are taught that will then continue uh, long term, or at least we hope and try to make these good positive changes in terms of their health that will be continued even after the completion of rehab. Sure. Well, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Health Talks Now. Staying healthy is a lifelong commitment, and Baptist Health can provide the support you need to lower your risks, improve your quality of life, and protect your long-term health. Visit BaptistHealth.com to hear our other podcasts, learn about our services, and find more tips to help you stay a step ahead of your health. Baptist Health. Be a healthier you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as medical advice. The content in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and medical judgment. Always seek the advice of your physician with any questions or concerns you may have related to your personal health or regarding specific medical conditions. To find a Baptist Health provider, please visit baptisthealth.com.